in a, an emotionally compelling or gripping way. So hopefully everybody has a favorite song or two. Uh, when I was a young man, uh, longer ago than I care to remember, Larry, before we both had gray hair, uh, I'd always wanted, growing up, uh, I was fascinated by the mountains and by hiking and hunting and fishing. And so I got to, oh, I suppose it was about 19 or 20, got to leave the Midwest. And I went up and uh, took up an invitation from my older brother, Joe, and his family. And I got to live with them for almost two years in Big Sky Country. Do you know what state Big Sky Country is? So that's Montana. So I lived just west of Glacier National Park. It's one of the jewels, certainly, in the continental United States, and lived uh, just, just south of the Canadian border. And while I was there, I, I did all the things I wanted to do. I got to hunt and fish, and it's a beautiful area, of course. Got to fulfill some dreams. Well, after almost two years and then some, a little bit of time on the coast, Kathy and I both moved back to Topeka uh, to get married. And my thought was we'd get married and I'd save a little money and then we'd move back to where God clearly wanted me, back, back to the mountains. I didn't care if it was, it could be Colorado, it could be Wyoming, or it could be Montana, but one of them was a given. Well, you know how life is. Life, life throws you curves. It, it doesn't stack up the way you anticipate always. And we got pregnant with our first daughter right away and Rachel's delightful and all our money was gone though. And for, for a pregnancy, and you know how life goes on. We got plugged into a church, and God made it clear, hey, I'm planting you here. But, but basically what happened over two or three different occasions in the uh, usually several years separated, uh, that longing to be back in the mountains uh, never went away. And so on two or three different occasions, I looked long and hard. I did a lot of investigation to see if I could pick up my family and move back to the Rocky Mountains. And there's lots to consider, of course, in that. And, you know, where you are and how God's plugged you in is probably notably the biggest, for sure. You know, not only those folks that have invested in you, which is no small thing, but the folks you've been called to invest in as well. Uh, but each time I contemplated this in my reading in Scripture, I ended up on the same verse on every occasion. And in that verse is in Psalm 37. That verse is verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. And I knew each time I landed as I'm contemplating and thinking and investigating and praying, I know each time that that happened that it was no accident that I ended up in Psalm 37 and that God was saying, Mike, I want you to stay where I've put you. And I want you to be faithful right there, right there in Topeka, Kansas. And that's, I've been back 42, 42 years. And, uh, you know, I get away to the mountains when I can. But that was the deal. It was, no, you're not free to pick up and leave. I want you to stay right here. When I read Psalm 37, uh, just like Larry, it's like coming home. It's familiar. The themes are familiar. And that verse has been life-shaping and life-changing for me, to be sure. Psalm 37 has some parallels with some other. This is all by way of introduction. We'll get there. This will be a little different because it's a different kind of song that we're looking at this morning. Psalm 37 is a lot like Psalm 1. So you remember in Psalm 1, it's short, but it's sort of the introduction to the whole book of Psalms. And you remember the two highlights are the wicked and the righteous. 
And we talked about that. God, God calls some actions and some people wicked. And so we do too. And he calls some actions and some people righteous. And so we do too. And so that theme goes throughout the book of Psalms. Not only Psalms, it's in all the wisdom literature. That theme is huge in Psalm 37 also. But also, if you read Psalm 49, and really the closest parallel to this, Psalm 37, is Psalm 73. Easy to remember. The numbers are reversed. And both of these have to do with um, something like this, an attitude like this. Lord, I'm, I'm uh, doing what I think you want me to do, and I'm trying to be faithful, and I'm plugging in where I think you want me plugged in, but I look at my life compared to people who aren't doing, li living life the way I think they're supposed to, the way you've called me to, and they look successful and healthy and wealthy, and uh, I'm feeling a little ripped off. How do I, how do I look at these things? So Psalm 37 treats that, and if you want to later, you can read Psalm 49 and Psalm 73 also. Psalm 37 is fairly unique. It's a song of instruction. It warns us away, as Larry mentioned, from envy. We're to take our cues from God, trusting that he will not only bless us in the moment for faithfulness, but also he'll give us future reward that will be worth the wait. That faithfulness now not only has a fruit in our lifetimes, but there's a fruitfulness, there's a reward for that later that we will no doubt not lament at all. Alan Ross says this about Psalm 37. It's a powerfully didactic psalm. So it's a song of instruction. It's teaching us. And it exhibits a proverbial character. And it's because of this that it's somewhat of a difficult song to teach through. So steeped in the wisdom tradition that it could be included in the book of Proverbs. Which is to say, if you just took this out of Psalms and you put it as a chapter in Proverbs, it would seem like it fit right in. That's, that's the kind of language, the contrast and comparison it brings. Uh, like some other songs we've looked at, it is an acrostic. So as an aid for memorizing, for the Hebrews, this was helpful. So every second line begins with the next successive letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So if I'm young junior and I'm memorizing the song, it's like, okay, Aleph, Bet, Gimel, etc. I'm going down the alphabet to remember what the next line starts with. This is a little different, too. You know, when we sing uh, songs of worship, usually you think the attitude is, I'm focused upward, I'm singing to God. Well, this song, it's like we're singing, but God is speaking through the words of this song to us. Okay, so it's different. It's not a worship song where we're describing God so much, although it includes that, but we're reminding ourselves and each other what God wants for us and from us as far as faithfulness goes. This was written by King David, verse 25, as you'll see. We know it, it was uh, written at the end of his life or near the end of his life. Nothing else is said about the background, but as you get into it, you realize, okay, so it's the righteous and the wicked, and the wicked look successful and wealthy, and, and I might be less so. How do I think about that? Uh, if you read 1 Samuel 25 later, maybe someone or some situation in David's memory like this, that's the story of Nabal, who was very wealthy and very successful, but who was a fool, was a very unrighteous man, and his life was cut off spectacularly and briefly. So David maybe was thinking of something like that, but he doesn't tell us. We're going to start by looking at verses 1 through 4. I'm just picking them out just to give an introduction. Then we'll read through the rest of the 40 verses, 
So it's a lot of verses for us to read at a time. And then we'll come back and we'll look at the big breakdown, which is what does God say about and to the wicked? And what does God say about and to the righteous? And as we're reading through these guys, this is, uh, if you've read through Proverbs, you, you have the same problem I do, which is if I read a chapter and there's 30 verses, they might be 15, 20, 25 different topics, right? They don't all apply. I can't think about them all at the same time. If you say I forgot half of them this morning, that's okay because it's like a chapter out of Proverbs. So what you really want to say is as we're talking about the wicked, we want to make sure we don't look like that, right? As we're talking about the righteous, we want to say we want to look like this. This is God's call on us today as well. So on those comparisons, if we say I don't look like the wicked, we would call that faint praise, okay? That's not a big deal. So we want to look at the positives at the righteous as well and say, Lord, is this, are these descriptions, are th is this true of me? Does this look like my life? Does my life look like the righteous here? So if you've got your Bibles or your apps, uh, start there for Psalm 37, verses 1 through 4. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. They will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Instead, verse 3 and 4, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Uh, ESV, cultivate, uh, feed on. This, this gets different uh, uses, different translations. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. So we're sort of setting the stage here on the front end. You got this contrast between the wicked, don't be like them, and the righteous. The wicked are characterized as doing those things God says are evil and wrong. Their lives are set against God and God's things. So if our ears feel a little assaulted when we say wicked or evil, we're just using the language Scripture uses, okay? We're not used to applying that to people and situations in our time. Those are phrases we don't routinely use, but they abound in Scripture, so we want to be honest with the text. So David starts by saying, don't fret and don't be envious, and these are both sort of strong words. Uh, fret means to burn or be angry or furious. So this would be like if someone cuts me off in traffic and I think about it, and the more I think about it, the angrier I get. That's what this is like. I'm thinking about their situation, my situation, and the more I think, the more emotionally engaged negatively, angry, frustrated I get. He says also don't envy them. Uh, envy can be translated either zealous or jealous. Don't be jealous for what they have or their lifestyle. Don't be zealous yourself to get what they have the way they got it. They are not your cue. We don't take our cues from these folks, he says. That's throughout this song. So they may be the epitome of success in the world you and I inhabit, and God says through David, don't take your cues from them anyway. What they have is not worth it getting the way they got it. So why should we not fret or be envious toward the wicked? Verse 2 says, because their health and wealth and success don't last. Sometimes it doesn't last in time, and it certainly doesn't last in eternity. In fact, <clears throat> excuse me, David says, it's like if you cut herbs in your garden and you laid them out on the hot summer day we have now, they would dry out in the day, they'd be gone. 
I planted my little garden. I've got my nice little pepper plants. I'm looking forward to harvesting some peppers. And you know what they look like with that heat? If I didn't go out and water them in the morning, they just droop. It's like, man, if they don't get water, they're going to be dead in no time. Well, that's the thought here. Guys, no matter how much health, wealth, success they have, it doesn't last. That's the thing. Take that in mind. Also, it's important. David doesn't bring this up here. Solomon brings it up in Proverbs. This song is not a call to delight in God's judgment on the wicked. Listen to Proverbs 24, 17, and 18. Don't rejoice when your enemy falls. Let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased and turn away his anger from him. The thought is, biblically, God delights in loving kindness and faithfulness and grace and mercy he does judgment, he does it perfectly, but he doesn't delight in it. And we're not to delight in God's judgment in the end of wicked people and the end of their lives and hopes because that's not something to rejoice over. Now we can say when we see God's judgment, it's always right. And we might praise God for the perfection of his judgment on the wicked. But he's not rejoicing over this and we're not called to rejoice over this either okay so it's we rejoice in God's loving kindness and grace so the point David makes is that the wicked who oppress the righteous and that's the other thing here we'll talk about that in a minute this song sets up it's not just that there's two camps the wicked and the righteous guys the wicked are characterized as opposing the righteous the wicked intentionally try to harm and subvert and do damage to the righteous. And there's a reason for that. The world isn't divided by nice people and nicer people. The world is divided by those who are saved and those who are not, those who are in God's kingdom and those who remain under Satan's influence and control in his kingdom. And this song reminds us of that. We're either righteous or we're wicked. We're either righteous in Christ or we're wicked because we still are living independent of God. So this is reality. This is the world as God sees it. Instead, David says of the righteous, verses 3 and 4, trust God and keep obeying Him and doing what you know is right. Keep at it. Remain where God has planted you and continue to honor Him in all the ways you know to. Make God Himself your delight and God will give you the delights of your heart. That's a great promise. If my heart is fixed on God... God's free to give me all kinds of blessings because they're not idols. If my heart's fixed on God, he's free to bless me in ways he's not otherwise. What we find is that God gives us the delights of our heart. So this is a bit, little bit like the, uh, the tortoise and the hare. So the tortoise wins the race because he keeps plodding in the same right direction. And that's what the righteous are called to do as well. I'm going to read the rest of the song. This is verses 5 through 40. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him. He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in His way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger, forsake wrath, fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. 
For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and the needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance. But the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. The wicked borrows but does not pay back. But the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young and now am old. So that's David near the end of his life. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good. So shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Wait for the Lord and keep his way. He will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree. Some, some translations say like a luxuriant tree. So you'd picture maybe out in the pasture this singular tall, luscious green tree, this big notable tree. But he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. In contrast, the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Well done. Eyes open? Okay. So we're, we'll look through this. We'll break this down a little bit. Guys, just a reminder when we do. This was written 
by a Jew who lived under the law in the land of promise. There are elements of this song that aren't and can't be a straight application to you and I today. We don't live in the land of promise. That's not a promise to us. So just as we talk about usually, if we're looking at Old Testament passages, we want to be careful to apply them appropriately in the time and the place we live. We also want to recognize this. The language of Proverbs are general truths. They are not... uh, You want to be careful to say there are times in which, and you can see this in Israel's history, you can read this in Israel, does God always save the righteous from the wicked? And we say, well, no. Uh, Jesus' death on the cross would be singular on that. But also, you look at old people, or excuse me, people in the Old Testament, and you'll say there were righteous people that were slain by the wicked. And so Psalm 37 doesn't look like it applies in that situation. So we always want to be careful if we're talking especially about proverbial type language that we're careful, we hold it lightly enough to say this isn't a direct promise that God says he's always going to keep in every life and every situation. Okay, so as we talk through this and we make application for ourselves, we want to hold it loosely enough that we can apply it appropriately in our own lives. Okay, so of the wicked, 18 direct mentions using seven, or excuse me, six different words. So wicked, and I'm just, this is the English translation, wicked 13 times, evildoers two times, wrongdoers, ruthless, transgressors, Uh, The man who carries out evil desires. So this is the theme. Half of the theme of the song is the wicked. They're mentioned repeatedly 18 times. What the wicked do and don't do. And again, just to make the point, in this song, and it might be helpful to remember just a little bit of the setting, when this was written, Israel is an oasis in a morally corrupt world, right? Israel is the only place in the world you can come and meet the living and true God because the knowledge of him is there. So for David or for the Jews, it was easy to think about there's us here, the righteous, and then there's the rest of the unsaved world. You and I, though, we're scattered throughout, right? It's not quite the same as that was for David. It was easier for him to say there's us and there's everyone else. But in some sense, that's still true. The church of Jesus Christ is still like Israel. It's God's presence in the world today. And everything outside that church, guys, is part of the wicked world subject to Satan. So in that sense, it's still true, but it's not geographically true the way it was for David. What do the wicked do and what do they not do? Well, they plot. And they're plotting against other people. They devise, they imagine ways to harm the righteous This is an activity that is their norm, plotting against other people. They gnash their teeth. This is anger. By the way, do you remember in Acts 7 when Stephen is stoned to death? The imagery is Stephen looks like an angel on earth, and the religious leaders around him are so angry it says they're gnashing their teeth. It's like dogs, just like Psalm 22 in Jesus' crucifixion, the images of gnashing dogs against this angelic representative of God. Well, that's the thought here. They're angry. They don't like the righteous. They want to harm the righteous. Uh, Listen, I've combined a bunch of these so that we can talk in bigger rocks, bigger pictures. 
They draw their swords and bend their bows. So this is violence against others. They kill the righteous. They slay the upright. They are ruthless. So as we unpack those words, it means they're strong, they're terrible, they're violent. That's true physically, it's socially, it's economically. They use any means to harm the righteous. So in those days, again, sort of the implements of warfare. Guys, today it could be anything. It could be naysaying someone else's character. I think today words are the most common weapon that are used around the globe today. Social media, news, etc. Words are what we attack other people with, commonly disparage them. They major, <clears throat> excuse me, in destruction and death. I have a picture I cut out from a newspaper years ago. And it's of an abortion rights protester at what turned into a melee. It was a, it was a, a protest and different factions were there. And this, this woman, <laughs> you can't see her like I can. In my head, if I could, I'd let you in and you'd see this image on this face. So it was a middle-aged woman. And guys, she is being restrained by policemen because she is trying to get at the pro-lifers in front of her. And it's murder on her face. It is murderous. I've never seen an image that communicates hatred and vengeance and murder more fully than this middle-aged woman who wants to be able to kill unborn children. There's this whole thing. What you'll see at the end of the day is the wicked major on death. That's the deal. At the end of the day, the wicked major on death. They put down the poor and the needy. Which is interesting, right? If, if I'm just out to make much of myself and my life, why do I need to take advantage of the poor and the needy? But they do. And guys, politically, you know many of the politics of our day, you know they put down the poor and the needy, and it's in the name of serving the poor and the needy. They harm the poor and the needy. This is true uh, there's all kinds of literature on this. I won't go and get into all the politics, but many of the government policies in this nation, intentionally or unintentionally, they harm the people they say they're there to help. That goes on today. Uh, they borrow, but they don't repay. So it's not that they can't repay, they're stealing. They say, can I borrow that? Yes, you can, but I'm not going to pay it back. Uh, the wicked harm others. They use and abuse others for their own benefit. Uh, this is Juneteenth. Did you guys know this? June 19th. This is the second, second, uh, I believe, uh, occurrence of the federal holiday that was approved last um, January, I think. It's the celebration. This was begun by slaves, in, freed slaves in Texas right after the Civil War. I think it was 1866, June 19th. And this was their celebration of liberation from the tyranny of slavery. That was something to celebrate. This was the unrighteous, unholy treatment of slaves in the South was not a good thing. And so people were oppressing other people intentionally. The end of that was a good thing. Human trafficking today, guys, as people in this church can tell you, this goes on in Topeka, Kansas. People are being trafficked in Topeka in our backyards. People are being bought and sold, women and children. This is going on, you know, human trafficking is at an all-time high internationally. This is going on today. I'm buying and selling souls. Uh, the manipulation of financial markets. You know, when, you know when somebody makes a lot of money online? Excuse me, not online. I look at it online, <laughs> you know, in the markets. It's usually because someone else lost. 
Now, in a good, in a good uh, economic scene, everything rises, that's a good thing. But often what you find is somebody made a lot of money because someone lost a lot of money. That's the same kind of thing that the wicked were doing then is still being done today. So this isn't just stuff back then. This is stuff today. The fruit of their wickedness, some of this is just the natural product of what they do, what the wicked do. Some of this is God's judgment. So this is what it says. Again, grouping some of these uh, characteristics or descriptions together. Cut off by God, cut off, cut off three times. Do we get the picture? God cuts them off. They perish, they cease to be, they vanish like smoke, they disappear, they can't be found. The wicked, the, the healthy, wealthy, successful wicked. You look for them and, and it says they're gone. One description is it's like vapor or smoke. Their lives ultimately, in God's eyes or in eternity's eyes, their lives are so insignificant that it's like a wisp of cloud that was here and it's gone. And there's no seeing it again. Now, Scripture says descriptively that life for all of us is short. It's like a vapor or a shadow. It's here and then and gone. But of them, this is a defining characteristic of their life. They're not significant in any uh, notable way in eternity's eyes. If you think of guys like Hitler or Mussolini, these guys were riding the crests of the wave. They were the most powerful people in their day. And they were Mussolini. You can look, you know, Hitler takes his own life. Mussolini was shot and killed and disfigured publicly among the, the Italians who hated him. Lives cut short, you know, and all the fame and all the power and all the wealth and all the success, it's gone. And when we think of people like that today, it's not positively. They're not success stories. They're people to be aware of and avoid. Don't want anything to do with them or their lifestyle. They major in death and they reap what they've sown. Uh, it says God laughs at them. Guys, you don't want God to laugh at you. This is not a good thing. If the joke's on us, that's not a good thing. Do you remember the other place where God laughs? Psalm 2. You know, when men, remember we've, we looked at this psalm, I raise my fist to God and I say, I'm going to throw off your shackles. I'm going to live life according to my thoughts and my way. And, and your Messiah, he's not my king. And, and it says God laughs because this is a joke. This isn't conceivable. Well, that's the thought here, too, for the wicked, the wicked that think, I'm all that, and I'm going to get my way. God laughs. The joke's on us. Their arms are broken. At some point, you know, if both of my arms are broken, I can't do much, can I? Their ability to harm or to continue to self-promote, it's broken. They are cursed. They are cursed. Guys, in the language of the Jews, remember the time in which this was written, they're living under the Mosaic law. And what did that law promise? That law promised blessing for faithfulness, and it promised cursing. It promised cursing for faithlessness. So David is speaking of the language that God said, I'm committed to. If you live this way faithfully, you can count on blessing. If you live this way wickedly, you can count on cursing. And if you want to get a flavor for that, read Deuteronomy 27 and 28. Because it's significant, and you wouldn't want to walk into that as a lifestyle. Their children are cut off. We might say, if you said uh, Mike was a lousy dad, why should his children suffer? Well, there's two things on this. The first is this. Kids get what their dads have to give, right? If you grow up here in the States, and you're used to a lifestyle and a certain level of, of living, it's because of who you were born to and where you live. 
But guys, if you were born today in the poverty-stricken areas of Africa, you'd grow up in poverty because that's what your dad has to give. That's what exists there. So on one hand, children always get what the father has to give. But here's the other thing. For Jews, blessing, God's blessing, was in part significantly tied to your children and their children and on down the line. And the thought was this. Not only do I live long and prosperously in the land of promise, and I have many children, but my children inherit my prosperity, as do their children. I live on through my children. So this is saying their children are cut off. That blessing that God would give to the righteous, a godly posterity down through generations, is not going to happen to the wicked. And if you think of this, Psalm 109 is ultimately fulfilled in Judas's betrayal of Jesus. It in part says, May his children be fatherless. May they wander about seeking bread from the ruins they inhabit. Was he, did he hate these kids un, un, unintentionally, needlessly? The thought was, no, they were inheriting what their father had to give. And to their father's discredit, if you will, they were not going to succeed. It wasn't to punish the children specifically, but it was because the parent that had prospered in wickedness wasn't going to receive that blessing, multi-generational blessing. In summary, we can say this, the wicked love neither God nor people. They refuse to live according to God's word. They live for their own selfish ends while simultaneously seeking to harm those who do right. Their presence on earth is as transitory as vapor and wind. Their end is destruction. They have no lasting heritage. They will be quickly forgotten unless as a cautionary tale. As you're reading in the Proverbs, you go through, get to the end of chapter 8, and it says, those who hate me, wisdom, love death. These people love death. They wouldn't say I love death. They wouldn't say I want death. But Scripture says that's what they love. That's what they're working towards. They love death. If you think of biblical characters in the Old Testament like King Ahab and his wife Jezebel, they would be a good epitome of this kind of life and this lifestyle. I want to say uh, also briefly, the, wi the wicked are with us today. And guys, many of the wicked, they, they speak in the language of religion. I'm just going to leave you with the reference from Philippians 3. You can read that later. But let me read this. This was last week from the Daily Citizen, this is online. A religious organization in Kentucky has announced the placement of three billboards, which tell women various abortion-positive messages, including that God supports or approves of the procedure. It's part of the New Clergy Advocacy Board that Planned Parenthood has brought together in order to try and influence vulnerable, church-going women that there is nothing wrong with abortion, despite Scripture's clarity on the topic. These are religious people. These are people wearing religious robes, claiming to speak for God. That's going on today. That's today's news. So this isn't just back then, and it's not just someplace else, and it's not just people that say they don't believe in God. It's people that say they're speaking for God. This is going on today. Are we suitably depressed? Yes. Okay, well, let's turn the corner. Of the righteous... So how do we do on that one, by the way? So if I read anything in there that sounds like me, my lifestyle, my attitude, I need to repent, confess, and turn around. 
Of the righteous, 16 direct mentions from six different words. The righteous nine times, meek, upright twice, blameless twice, saints, and the man of peace. What the righteous do and don't do. Again, grouping these together. They refuse fretting and envy. They refuse fretting. They refuse anger and wrath. Is there a theme here? They refuse, they refuse, they refuse. Verse 8, fretting leads only to evil. So this is where the psalm started. And this song, if nothing for the righteous or those who say they have faith in Christ and follow God, it says you're commanded to refuse fretting, worry, anxiety, anger. You're called to refuse it. You know, sometimes we will say, um, uh, I'm not worrying, I'm concerned. So the, the laughter, you're the ones that I'm talking to. I'm not, wor- I'm not sinning by disobeying God's command not to worry, fret, be anxious, be angry. I'm concerned. Well, here's the deal. Does your concern, does it give you more or less peace? Because that's, that's the qualifier. If you, don't, if you lack peace, then it's not godly concern because I can be concerned about something, have God's concern, and I can pray about that, and I have God's peace. But, but if it's ungodly, if it's the thing God's telling me to refuse, it doesn't engender peace, guys. Inside, you, you keep that sense of disruption, of, of turmoil, inner turmoil. I can't rest, okay? So when we're finding ourselves in that, we want to say, God, I recognize that sin. I don't want to own that. I repent. Help me move out of this. This is one of the most common things, I think, for Christians. Uh, They commit themselves to the Lord. They trust the Lord. They commit themselves to the Lord. So they don't fret. They do commit and trust. And it's got to be, and it's going to be, one or the other, isn't it? You're either going to fret and worry because you're responsible, or you're going to trust and have peace because God's responsible. Right? We want to be responsible where God calls us to, Excuse me, the thought here is you and I can't change other people. We can't make things happen magically. So really it's about I'm not fretting, but what am I doing instead? Well, I'm committing myself to the Lord. I'm trusting Him for the thing I can't control. You know, the ultimate example of this is, of course, is the Lord. So do you remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? He's facing something that He doesn't want. And you remember what he says, you know, Father, if there's any way, if there's a plan B, that'd be lovely. Would you bring that in now? Because I really don't want to do this. But then he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours. He was doing exactly what this song says. He was committing himself to his Father. He was trusting the Lord. And then what does he say from the cross? So remember, by his Father's will... He has suffered at the hands of sinful men. He's been beaten. He's been ripped. He's been mocked. He's crucified. And what does he still say from the cross? Into your hands I commit my spirit. He's doing exactly what Psalm 37 says. And guys, the life of Christ is in you if you're a believer. That willingness that you read of Jesus, it's in you already if Christ is in you and you're in Christ. 
So for you and I to grow in this, we become more like Christ. We become more willing to say, Lord, I don't get it. I don't even want this thing, this situation, this burden, this challenge, this trial. But I commit myself to you. I trust you for what's going on. I entrust myself to you. That's exactly what Jesus did. Uh, Be still and wait patiently. Waits for the Lord, takes refuge in the Lord. This is a big theme in Scripture, waiting on God. The thought here is that I wait on God because I trust God. So I'm willing to be still. I love Psalm, I think it's 131, verse 2. I have quieted and calmed my soul like a child that's weaned on its mother's chest. I'm protected. My soul is still. My emotions are still. I'm calm. Be quiet. Well, because I'm trusting God. I'm at peace. It doesn't mean life is okay. It just means in God I have this comfort. I'm waiting on Him. I'm being still in His presence. Uh, The righteous delight in abundance of peace. They delight in peace. We're not after conflict and war. We delight in peace. You know, the sons of God are peacemakers. We delight in that kind of thing. Our lives are free from shame. Shame is what we bring on ourselves when we know we're doing wrong, right? Embarrassment and shame. Uh, Anatoly Sharansky told a story and it's part of his biography called Fear No Evil. This is several years ago. He was in prison in the Soviet Union. He was a dissident and intellectual. He was well-known in the West, and he was in prison. They took his Hebrew Bible. He said, I want it back. They said, no. So he said, fine, I'm going to go on a hunger strike. And he did for weeks. And the, and the Soviets, they don't want him to die in prison because it's an embarrassment to the West. This guy's done nothing wrong. We've imprisoned him, and he dies in our care. So they came in one day. He hasn't eaten a thing in weeks. He's harmed his body forever. His heart's now affected for the rest of his life from this starvation, but he's determined. And they come in, and guys, what they do is they force-feed him. And you know what happened when they force-fed him? An explosion out both ends. His body wasn't ready for anything like that. Explosion out of both ends. But this was his commentary. He said, I wasn't embarrassed, and I wasn't ashamed. He said, my captors needed to be embarrassed and ashamed. He said, only I could bring shame upon myself. And that's the thought here. The righteous are free from shame because we're doing the right thing. And when we don't do the right thing, we're confessing that as sin. We're getting forgiveness and we're going forward again, right? So we want to aim for the righteous call that David's making here. Do any of us always make it? No. Don't go away feeling like you're under the hammer. We want to recognize those areas God wants to bring change in. But this is where we want to aim. This is the direction God means us to grow. No shame. Uh, They're generous in giving to others. They lend to others generously. Guys, if you read the law, you know, people uh, think of the law of Moses, it's like it's lex talion. It's all about, you know, uh, an eye for an eye. And it's like, you read the law and you know what you see? God had all these built-in commands for the Jews to be generous to each other and to take care of each other. It was mandated throughout the law, that they were going to be generous. God required it. And then you see examples of that. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, it's the longest treatment of giving in the Bible, and it's all about Christians taking care of Christians. The collection you read in the New Testament epistles, they're the collection by Christians for Christians in Judea. 
Jewish, Gentile Christians taking up money to take care of Jewish believers. There's this, this uh, generosity. God's been generous to me. We're generous to each other. Uh, Proverbs 19.17 says, Whoever's generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him. Job, one of his, you remember, <clears throat> excuse me, when he's defending his own life, what does he say again and again? He took care of the poor and the needy. And this phrase you'll see throughout the Old Testament, the orphan, the widow, and the stranger, the Jews were to take care of. They were to be generous towards the poor and the needy. We should be as well. Uh, turns away from evil and embraces what's good. This is harder today than ever. Guys, people in the world today, we're subject to more temptation than ever. Ever. Uh, just think historically. If you're back when this was written, you know, you, you got towns and cities. Very few people can um, write. Writing materials aren't, aren't easy to produce. You have no billboards. You have no internet. You have very little in literature. You, you see what I'm saying? Today we're surrounded. We are bombarded by messages all the time. Temptation has never been more prevalent than it is today. The righteous refuse temptation. Guys, this takes our will engaged to say, Lord, we want to honor you. We want to live faithfully like that. They speak wisdom and justice. They live by God's word and they keep God's ways. If you... Uh, what do you need to have God's wisdom to give to yourself or to other people? You need to know what God thinks wisdom is. That, that means you need to read your Bible. Thank you. If you're going to live God's ways and God's words, what do you have to do? You've got to read your Bible. Uh, they won't slip. They're prevented from falling headlong. You remember in the wisdom literature, the godly life is a walk forward. And God makes the path straight, and I don't fall to the left or the right. God's upholding me on that walk through life. The fruit of the righteous. Uh, God says He's going to demonstrate their righteousness. And I'm just, for time's sake, guys, I'm going to rush through just a little bit here. They're going to inherit the land. There's some things I, I just don't have time to cover. This is said four times. Four times in this song. It's the most cited thing on blessing, God's blessing to these people. Verse 9, 11, 22, and 29. For the Jews to be in the land of promise was to be in the place of blessing. To be out of the land of promise was to be out of the place God said, this is where I'll bless you. He called the land of promise His. And He says, that's where I'm taking you to my land, and that's where I'll bless you. So four times He says, you'll inherit the land. This is your place. With me, this is your place. Jesus quotes verse 11 in Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek, why? They inherit the land. That's straight out of our psalm. For us, here's the question on the application. Where has God planted you? Where's the land of promise for you? It's not the same for all of us, right? We're a small church in Topeka, Kansas. We would say this no matter where we were. Where has God planted us? Where has he called us to walk out faithfulness? See, I kept wanting to get away. I kept wanting to get away because I want to live in the mountains where the summers are nice and I can deal with the winters. You know what I'm saying? Guys, this is the worst time of year ever. Hot and muggy. I hated this growing up, and here I am. <clears throat> but it's because God has his purposes for planning us where he wants us. 
And part of that's for what we can give to others, and part of that's for what others can give to us. That faithfulness is not exclusive, it's mutual. Where has God planted us? We want to be slow to pick up and leave our church, our home, our neighborhood, or our town. Why? Not because God never moves any of us on, but because we don't want to simply say, I can do whatever I want. That's not life. Not, that's not the life of faithfulness. We want to be where God's called us to be. That's the deal. Um, I've got too much to cover, so let me... Uh, the righteous bless their children also. This is a big deal. Um, their children will prove a blessing to others, and God has, God has regard for and upholds the children of the righteous. Let me just ask you a question. If you're parenting today, what's the effect of your parenting on your children related to these kinds of effects? Will my children be blessed through my parenting? And... Do my children know they're not the center of the world, that they've been called, 1 Peter, they've been called to be a blessing to others? Do we model that? Do we live that out as a family? That we're not just all about what we can get, but that God means to use us to bless others. That comes from our parents. That model should be what we're communicating to our children today. Uh, let, me, let me close in summary here. The righteous trust in God. They refuse the ways and the prophets of the wicked. They delight in God and God's ways. God's pleased to bless them at all times and all places. Their confidence in God enables them to bless others in open-handed generosity. Their hope for blessing from the Lord extends past their own lives to their children's and beyond. You could think in the Old Testament of King Hezekiah as an example of this. Uh, God distinguishes the righteous from the wicked we need to live with that awareness. The most important form of righteousness is something we can't provide, God must. We're not working anything up to gain God's approval in anything we're talking about here today, right? That the only hope you and I have of absolute, perfect righteousness is what is offered to us in Christ. In Christ, we're given perfect righteousness. God's grace through faith in Jesus. Jesus is our righteousness. But here's the deal. Because we have the perfect righteousness of Christ, we're called to walk that out. We're called to grow in that. That's called to be the, the North Star for our life. We are righteous, so we live righteously. We don't do this all the time. We don't always do it well. We get that. We confess. We repent. We get up, and we get back in the race. Where has God planted us right now? Where does he want us? Should I tell them we're moving to Colorado next month now? Just kidding. Sorry. Couldn't help. Uh, if you would, stand with me. The worship team will come up. And if this reflects your heart, and that's always the, the question, don't, don't read it if it doesn't. Uh, we can pray this together from Psalm 37. Father, we trust in you and choose to refuse anxiety as unworthy of those under your care. Thank you for the perfect righteousness of Christ that is ours through faith. By your Spirit's presence and power, enable us to live out our call 